More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Welcome to another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I'm Kelly, and we are kicking off episode 10. In the double digits officially this week, the 10th episode of Survivor Sanctuary, I feel like I deserve some sort of really terrible treat that's probably filled with calories. But instead, I'm just going to sip my water and just be inwardly proud of myself and not feel like I need to reward myself with chocolate. But it feels like an accomplishment, right? Episode 10, and I hope that you have been enjoying the episodes. I hope that you've been getting something out of them, even if it's just to know that somebody is fighting the fight right along with you, going through the struggle of healing from sexual abuse. And sometimes that's all that it takes is knowing that somebody knows what you're going through or has some similar experiences. So I hope that it's been good for you these last 10 episodes or nine episodes and some change. Well, today I actually had a completely different podcast planned, but something happened and now this is just so heavy on my heart that there is no way I could not talk about it on the podcast today. So little change of plans. But last week we talked about sexual abuse being a big fat liar. We talked about the fact that sexual abuse lies to us and it tells us things that just aren't true, like I am unworthy. So we talked about that last week, the feeling of unworthiness as sexual abuse survivors. And I said in the episode, there are so many lies that sexual abuse tells us. And so in future episodes, we will tackle those. I didn't realize that that future episode was going to be the next episode, but that kind of just ended up happening today. And we have our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group to thank for that. So it's a great time to throw in that plug. Join the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group and you will be able to join these conversations. So with her permission, I want to share something that one of our group members said, I asked if there was any topic that people would like to hear covered on the podcast, any specific question or struggle or concern that they'd want to see tackled in an upcoming episode. And so I asked that question on Monday and I got some really great answers. And I want to thank everybody who took the time to leave a comment. That's really appreciated. And I love interacting with you guys on the Facebook group. It's lots of fun. But uh, something really stuck out to me that one person said, and she said blame. Blame was what she wanted to hear more about on upcoming episodes of Survivor Sanctuary. She said, I need help with shame and blaming myself for the abuse itself and also for not coming forward sooner. And you know, we kind of struck up a little conversation on Facebook and talked a little bit more about self-blame. And I thought it would be a really great thing to tackle on today's episode of Survivor Sanctuary, because one of the lies that sexual abuse tells us, and it is a lie, even if you don't believe that right now, I want to encourage you to say it to yourself, whether you believe it or not. One of the lies that sexual abuse tells us is that sexual abuse was our fault, 
that I did something to cause this, I did something to make it happen, or I didn't do X, Y, Z to make it stop. It's that self-blame and the shame that it brings with it, because there's a big old suitcase of shame that goes along with that self-blame. And it tells us sexual abuse is your fault. So another part of this group member's comment that really just stuck out to me so much, and it's been heavy on my heart, uh, was this. She said, I still fully believe that if I had told people my story, they would absolutely believe that it was also my fault. And she went on to say that her abuse began at the age of four years old. And something really struck me that she said at the end of this post, she said, I'd love to hear your take on it. Reason just doesn't work with me. And isn't that the truth? Because we can sit and and say all day long, sexual abuse was not my fault. The abuse I experienced was not my fault. I didn't do anything to make it happen. I didn't deserve it. I didn't ask for it. I didn't, you know, it's just, we can say that to ourselves and other people can say it to us. And a lot of times it's just very difficult to actually get that belief to permeate like down into our cells and really get into our subconscious mind and change that limiting and false belief that we have that so many survivors have. Most, if not all survivors struggle with this, the feeling of self-blame that I somehow caused what happened to me and the sexual abuse that I experienced was my fault, if not wholly, at least in part. And I could relate so much to this when I saw this comment and had me in tears a little bit at work today. And that one would have been tough to explain. I I was looking on my lunch break, so I will say that. But uh, anyone who walked by my desk would probably be able to see that um, I definitely was emotional about this. And I realized that it hit me very deeply because it's something that I struggled with my entire life. And that was one of the hugest things for me in the aftermath of sexual abuse was that feeling, I did this and it's my fault that it happened. And I know that so many survivors deal with that. So I wanted to unpack that a little bit on the episode today and ask the question, why do we believe this? And there are some things that I've learned as I've been studying about sexual abuse and about healing from sexual abuse. And as I've gone to therapy and as I've talked to different professionals, that things that I've learned, and I don't want you to think for a second that I'm giving you any kind of advice or be all end all, like this is everything. And what I say is the gospel truth, because honestly, I'm speaking from personal experience, because that's really all that I can do. I can speak from personal experience and I can speak to you about things that have been taught to me but I'm not in any way trying to be an authority. So I just want you to know, not a doctor, don't have a PhD in anything, not trying to act as a trauma therapist, just speaking from personal experience. I like to put that disclaimer in there. And I also wanna say that if you have the ability to go and see a trauma-informed therapist, if you can afford therapy and that's something you could do for yourself, I would so encourage you to do that because that is gonna be very life-changing. Make sure that it's a therapist. If you've gone through the trauma of sexual abuse, make sure that they uh, work with victims of that kind of trauma and are trauma-informed. That's super important. Uh, But that's just a side note. So back to self-blame. So I want to talk to you a little bit about my personal story of self-blame. And it started the nanosecond that I was sexually abused. Like, I don't remember saying to myself, Kelly, 
what just happened is your fault. I didn't say that out loud. I definitely didn't think those exact words. It was just a given. It was something that just was the truth, whether it was or not. It was the truth for me. And I didn't have to put it to words because it was just something that I understood. And it makes me so angry. It makes me so angry that our bodies and our brains respond to abuse a lot of the time in ways that are so helpful for our abusers because they don't even have to tell us that it was our fault. They don't even have to tell us, don't tell anybody, because everything that happens that they have orchestrated and that they have done to us makes us respond by blaming ourselves and not wanting to tell anybody. So just a side note, makes me very angry. I hate it, and it is definitely something that abusers exploit because most abusers don't ever have to say, if you dare tell anyone, I'll do X, Y, Z. Now, some of them do say that, but my abuser didn't. He didn't have to say anything because it was just something that was a given to me. This is the gospel truth. This happened. It's my fault. I can't tell anybody. So I have an uncle who does have a PhD, and he is a psychologist, and he does a lot of work with people who have been sexually abused. And when I was sharing with him a little bit of my story, and he was very helpful in the beginning uh, stages, helping me get through some stuff and reporting the abuse, and I was explaining to him how I didn't tell anyone for years because I always thought that it was my fault. I always thought that I had done something wrong. And he said, you know, that's totally understandable. And the way that he explained it to me, and it made sense, was that kids are very egocentric. Now, you might think egocentric people are like just people who only care about themselves. They're self-centered. And, you know, you think of somebody who's basically a jerk. So I'm not calling kids jerks. And I don't think that my uncle was calling kids jerks either. But basically saying that at that age, you know, that I was six years old, my brain was not fully developed. I did not have the ability to see life or understand life from any other perspective than what I was seeing it through in my own. So that made me egocentric without making me a jerk. I just didn't have the ability to untangle reality and to reason about it from any perspective other than what's happening right in front of me. So it's very natural for a child to think that they caused something, even if it's something minor, it's gonna be normal for a child to think, well, I was, there when this happened or this happened to me therefore it must have happened because of me and I think that it's important for us to know that because in the struggle to tell yourself that you're not to blame for what happened to you I think it's super helpful for us to know all of the reasons why our brain conspires to tell us that it is because of us and one of those reasons is because as kiddos We just don't have that ability to understand any perspective other than our own or understand that things happen outside of us because at that age, life is all about us. So if it happened to me, it must have happened because of me. And I felt like his explanation was really, really helpful for me in understanding why I had automatically assumed that the sexual abuse was my fault. So that's one of the reasons that we automatically blame ourselves. And that is kind of just a natural and normal reason. It's because that's the way our brains work. That's the way our bodies work, especially at a young age. And as kiddos, we don't have the ability to reason as adults. So we're going to have some really weird beliefs sometimes until people tell us differently. 
Now, before I get into a couple of more reasons that I think that we blame ourselves, I do want to give you a little bit of a trigger warning because I am going to be talking about uh, sexual abuse and some of the effects of sexual abuse. And there are a few things that I'm going to talk about that might be triggering for you. And if they are triggering for you, I just want to encourage you to maybe turn off the podcast for a little bit if you need to, uh, maybe listen with a friend if that makes it a little bit easier. Uh, just go easy on yourself. I know that uh, sometimes we can listen to things and we're fine, and other times things might just trigger us a little bit. And so some of the things that I'm about to talk about in regards to sexual abuse might be triggering for you. So just wanted to give you that warning. So one of the main reasons that I think that we blame ourselves a lot of times for sexual abuse is, well, we didn't run away or say no. You know, I didn't fight. I didn't say stop it. Some people do. A lot of people don't. It depends on your situation and everybody's situation is different. But for a lot of kids who are sexually abused, we're groomed and we are treated royally by the people who are grooming us and we trust them and we love them implicitly and then they use all of this trust and all of this love against us they use it to coerce us into doing something that we never would have chosen to do in the first place so we see that about ourselves like well I didn't tell him to stop and so you know I didn't yell for mom or dad I didn't hit him or whatever so that must mean that this is my fault or that somehow I'm a participant in what's happening to me but a quick reminder about the way that our brains work when we're experiencing trauma is helpful here so this is not by any means a scientific perfect explanation because I'm not a scientist and I'm sure that if a scientist is listening right now they're probably going to send me a strongly worded email and be like listen lady you need you need to study more before you try to tell people about the brain's trauma response but I'm going to do my best because I have read about it and I'm just giving it to you in very very nutshell version but if you want to know like really like full on how your brain functions in trauma and because of trauma a great book to read is The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Basil Vanderkolk, something like that. Just look up The Body Keeps the Score and you will find that. Actually, I will link to it in the show notes. But here's essentially what happens. When you experience a trauma, your amygdala alerts the rest of your system that danger is imminent. So there's a portion of your brain that sends out that emergency signal. Something is happening that requires fight or flight. And there's a third, freeze. And when your body goes into this stress response, your logical brain is pretty much non-existent. So if you wonder why sometimes you can't think clearly in the middle of a crisis situation and you can't keep a cool head and, you know, you think later, like, why did I say that or do that? Like, that was completely ridiculous. It's because when your brain goes into that fight or flight response, your body's stress response is activated and basically the body's fire alarm, it's telling you that there's a dangerous thing happening and you need to prepare to fight or to run. And when that portion of your brain takes over, your logical brain goes completely offline. And I remember talking to a therapist once, and I was telling her how, you know, when I was in this state of fight or flight, and I would get triggered by something, and my anxiety would just full force, I would have an anxiety attack. And I would feel the stress hormones 
pouring into my system. I could literally feel it happening. It was like a fountain in the center of my body, you know, flowing up and then going out into my limbs. And I could feel it just over and over again, the stress hormones releasing into my body. Nothing bad was happening to me, but my body was in this stress response. And I would tell her, like, I try to pray in those situations. I try to calm myself. I try to reason with myself. Nothing is, you know, nothing's happening to you. You're fine. You're fine. You're okay. And nothing that I would say to myself would make me actually be okay. Nothing would make me go out of this fight or flight mode. And I have learned since some great ways of coping and dealing with that stress response that we get into. And that's awesome. So I just wanted to give you that little caveat there. If you experience those situations where your body goes into its stress response and it's kind of crazy, like there's hope and there are definitely some awesome ways of dealing with that. But my therapist told me, Kelly, when your brain goes into that emergency mode and you're in fight or flight, your logical brain just goes to sleep. Like it literally goes offline to make way for the part of your brain that's trying to save your life. So she's like, you can reason with yourself all day long. You can sit and say, Kelly, here are the facts. Let me lay them out in order. Here is why you're not about to die. You know, but you can't use that kind of reason because your logical brain isn't working. So that's one of the reasons that we don't have the ability in a situation of trauma to know exactly what to do or say, especially when we're children. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine like a six-year-old child who does not know that sexuality is even a thing? You know, a six-year-old child who is sitting there with a person that she trusts, having no idea that this person would ever betray her because that's just not something that was within my realm of thought or feeling or experience. It just wasn't there. And so when this trauma starts happening to me and I'm confused and my body is is doing strange things and it's that situation where there's no reasoning your way out of it, especially when you're a child and you don't have the ability to reason, but even more so when you're in that trauma, like stress response, you are in fight, flight, or freeze. And for a lot of sexual abuse survivors, the thing that we dealt with during our abuse was freezing. And I definitely did. I was a freezer and I still am. I mean, to this day, sometimes traumatic things will happen like in front of me. And I just wish later that I had known the exact perfect thing to do. But in a lot of cases, I'll just freeze. And it's like, I am unable to move my limbs. I watch what's happening around me and I should know what to do to kind of help in the middle of that crisis. But a lot of times I'll just freeze. And I don't like that about myself, but it's just how my brain works and how my body works when I'm dealing with trauma. And so that's one of the reasons that we can't run away and we can't say no. We can't do the exact perfect thing when we're children and we're being abused because A, we don't have the ability to reason and B, even if we did have the ability to reason or to run away or to say no, the odds of that happening when you're in the middle of a stress response are very, very, very low. But that's definitely one of the reasons that we take on some self-blame. Like, I didn't run away. I didn't say no. I didn't ask this person to stop. I didn't do X, Y, or Z. Um, I wasn't doing this or I was doing that. And we use those against ourselves to say that this was your fault. So one of the other reasons that we blame ourselves, and I gave the trigger warning for this already, but this definitely triggers me just even to talk about it. Our bodies respond to sexual abuse a lot of times the way that our bodies were created to respond sexually to non-abusive touch. So our bodies were made to respond to sexual touch. 
And a lot of that is completely beyond our control. So not only in a lot of situations of childhood sexual abuse, does sexual abuse not hurt, but it actually feels good. And I hate saying that. Like, it makes my skin crawl. I'll never forget the first time I heard Oprah say, you know, of course we blame ourselves. Sexual abuse, it feels good. Like what, like what kid can deal with that, you know, not even knowing what sexual touch is and then suddenly experiencing it and trusting the person 90% of the time we're trusting the person who is touching us in this manner and our bodies respond exactly the way our bodies were created to respond to sexual touch. They just weren't created to respond to sexual touch from a person who shouldn't be touching us that way. And that's all on the abuser, it's not on us. But because our bodies respond to abuse in that manner, it opens up an entire world of self-blame. In my mind as a six-year-old, something feels good that is very much bad, therefore I am very much bad. That's just the way that it worked in our minds. And so I know logically that our bodies respond to sexual touch because they were created to respond to sexual touch. And it is not us at fault for responding to this touch. It is 100% the perpetrator's fault for touching us in this manner in the first place. And I love how Dr. Dan Allender explains this in his book, The Wounded Heart. And I'm going to read you an excerpt from his book. And I'm also going to link to this because if you've struggled with self-blame or shame surrounding how you responded to the abuse that happened to you, or you feel that sense of shame, this is a really great book because he definitely deals a lot with this. But I just want to read an excerpt, and I think that it kind of helps us understand a little bit more what's happening. The abuser woos the child or adolescent through reading the desires of his or her heart. He reads the child's absence of care and attachment through his or her insecurity and begins offering what the child's caregivers have failed to offer. The child is given delight and told secrets. Relational intimacy is then deepened with touch that feels life-giving. Over minutes or months, the abuser begins to use the child's desire to annul his or her sense of danger or wrong. The tentacles of the grooming reach deeper until the will of the child is broken. The abuser crosses the line of honor and sexual abuse occurs. Usually it's covered over and hidden and more secrets and threats are used to ensure silence. It is through this insidious seduction that more sexual abuse is likely to occur at even more egregious levels. So there's so much at play here that's not just about I didn't do this or I didn't do that or I did this and I did that. Uh, There is something insidious at play. There is a person who is literally wooing a child to break down their barriers so that they have access to sexually abuse this child. I love how he calls it this insidious seduction because that's so often what it is. Our abuser accesses the desires of our heart. He reads them and he might find his way in because of some sort of insecurity where maybe we're not getting enough attention at home. Maybe we enjoy a certain kind of attention and he begins to offer what we're missing. And like what kid isn't going to respond positively to that? And then it eventually turns into sexual abuse, whether it happens in an hour or a day or a week or a month, however long it takes. This is very calculated by the abuser. 
It's not just some random thing that happened. It's not a random event where, oh, oops, I tripped over my shoelaces and I ended up sexually abusing a child. That's not how it works. It's evil. It's calculated evil. And it's a complete and utter disregard for the life that they are essentially destroying. And I want to clarify here that I'm talking about adults who sexually abuse children and groom them. Uh, Not everyone's experience, obviously, with sexual abuse is exactly the same. Some people are abused by other children, sometimes their own age. So that kind of sexual abuse can cause a great deal of shame and self-blame as well. But when I talk about this insidiousness and the grooming, I'm definitely talking about adults who groom and sexually abuse children, just to clarify that. It's totally normal for us to trust people and to really love people who offer us that attention or things that we might be missing, who offer us love and companionship. And and like those are normal things. And every kid wants and needs that tenderness and care. Unfortunately, with sexual abusers, they use those desires that are totally normal against us. And in the end, it causes us to feel shame because we trusted shame because we felt a certain way during the abuse. Shame because we know that what happened was shameful and our brains can't comprehend that it's not at least partly our fault. And again, I would encourage you to read Dr. Dan Allender's book. It's called um, The Wounded Heart and he has a second book called Healing the Wounded Heart. And both of those really dive into the shame aspect of sexual abuse and I highly recommend them. I know that they helped me a lot. Uh, when I first started healing from sexual abuse. In fact, The Wounded Heart was the very first book that I ever read, and it was so eye-opening for me. Like, my jaw was on the floor for, like, two weeks afterwards. I just walked around in this cloud of, like, oh, my gosh, he just wrote a whole book about my entire life. And it was very eye-opening. So if you haven't read The Wounded Heart or Healing the Wounded Heart, um, I do really recommend those two books. So our bodies respond to the abuse. We didn't run away or say no. It didn't hurt. Um, A lot of times we think that abuse is something that hurts. You know, you think of abuse and you think of like physical abuse or some sort of physical pain. And a lot of times with childhood sexual abuse, there isn't any pain involved. And I'm not saying every time, but a lot of the times. And so that's a form of sexual abuse, one that involves care and tenderness and, and loving touch from a person that we should trust, that entangles us in the shame and confusion even more because we realize after the fact, oh my goodness, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have been responding that way. And we go into this mode of self-blame and self-loathing rather than being able to put the abuse and the blame for the abuse squarely on the shoulders of the abuser who orchestrated the entire thing, who groomed us to be able to use us in the manner that he used us in. So these are just three of the reasons that I think that we blame ourselves. And one reason, and I shared it on the Facebook group page today, that we blame ourselves. And I think that this was really huge in my own story. And uh, one of the survivors that I was interacting with shared that it was the same for her. And I think that one of the big reasons that we blame ourselves for the abuse we experienced is because blaming ourselves helps to shield us from the trauma of being victimized. And I know that it was huge in my life. Like, I couldn't understand why I always thought it's my fault, it's my fault, it's my fault. 
And when I started to unpack a little bit of what I had experienced and the after effects of abuse, I started to really see that it was easier to blame myself for the trauma that I experienced because if I believed that it wasn't my fault at all, then I was powerless and I really was a victim. And that was super, super hard for me. So it's one of the ways that your brain helps you to get through the trauma is to believe you played a part in this, you caused it, it gives you a feeling of being empowered rather than of being victimized. Because a lot of times the feeling of being victimized and of not having any power at all can be stronger than the shame that we feel of being at fault. It's hard for a lot of us. And the self-blame and the self-loathing are easier for us to deal with than being somebody's victim. And I think that that was really huge in my story. And I don't know if it was in yours or not, but something to think about. So those are the things I know based on my personal experience with sexual abuse um, that those, those four things really point to me placing a lot of the blame for my abuse on myself. One, I didn't say no and I didn't run away. Two, my body responded to the abuse in a way that was shameful. Three, it didn't hurt. And so can I really call it abuse if I wasn't physically hurting? And four, because blaming myself shields me from the deeper trauma of being victimized. I'll never forget listening to Oprah one day when I was 15. And I think I've shared about listening to Oprah kind of in the background. And I mentioned it on a couple of podcasts. But the reason that I recall these times so vividly and I remember these episodes is because they really, really spoke to me. As a survivor of sexual abuse who was in complete denial, I would just stop cold every time I heard Oprah talking about sexual abuse. And I remember one day she said, it's not your fault. If you were abused, it is not your fault. And I remember just kind of having chills and feeling like that was a really powerful thing that she said. But in my mind, I knew if Oprah knew the real story, that she definitely wouldn't think that I wasn't at fault. And I was like almost 16 years old by this time. I might have been 16 years old. And I literally thought if she knew the truth, she wouldn't think that I was this innocent person. And I I mean, I was honestly thinking back to being a six-year-old child whose logical brain had yet to develop and thinking that I had somehow played this huge part in causing this sexual abuse and that I somehow had done it and I was the bad one. But that's what I carried with me for many, many years. So when we start the process of healing, and maybe not even start the process of healing, maybe you're still struggling with the feelings of shame or self-blame. Maybe they pop up for you every once in a while or often. Self-blame is one of the huge lies that sexual abuse tells us, and it's so ingrained in us that it's very difficult to begin to unravel it all. But I will say this, that from several years ago to now, My thoughts on self-blame are very, very different. Do I still struggle occasionally with feeling, you know, that I am to blame? Yes. Um, Do I struggle with those feelings of unworthiness and sometimes that shame that takes over and that wants to tempt me to take on the responsibility for my abuse? Yes, that still happens sometimes. But I will say this, that over the years, it has definitely gotten better. And I don't have like a 10-step program for getting to that point where you no longer blame yourself. I just don't have it. I just know that the more I entered my story of abuse, 
the more that I was willing to walk through that story and the more that I was willing to unpack what had happened to me, the greater my understanding became of the fact that I was not at fault for what happened to me. It didn't go away overnight. Um, I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of learning how abusers work and how they seduce us into trusting them. And one of the things that really helped me was people telling me over and over again that it wasn't my fault. I remember like specific people uh, in the beginning of my journey and my sister was one of them and she had this this righteous anger and it would just come out whenever she spoke like this was not your fault it was somebody else's fault the the blame is squarely on the shoulders of the perpetrator and I never really quite believed that but it was always like amazing to hear her say it I would just sit there and be like huh this person believes that I'm innocent and it was like a great feeling to have somebody in my corner who who was able to say like this wasn't your fault I wasn't at the point where I could say it yet but I had people who were saying it for me so my sister was one of them I remember the people who just responded to my story with anger at what had happened to me And one of those people was Jimmy Hinton, and we talk about him a lot on this podcast, and I've been on his podcast, but he was one of the people in the beginning of my journey who, when I told him my story, it was just like, it was just cut and dry, like, not your fault, perpetrator's fault. And it was those people, and there were just a handful of them in the beginning of my journey, who were the ones who said for me when I couldn't say it, this was not your fault. And the more that they said it, I won't say the more I believed it, but the more my mind began to be open to the fact that maybe they were right. So there were a lot of people saying it's not your fault. And I remember hearing people saying it to other survivors. And here's the funny thing. If a survivor ever shared their story of abuse with me, I would just become just like a mama bear and just want to protect them from their abuser and be like, there is no way on earth that any of this was your fault. And I had that just feeling of protection for other people and just this sense of knowing this abuse was not your fault. You did nothing to deserve it, but I couldn't access that for myself. But the more that I heard other people say it and the more that I began saying it to other survivors as I heard more and more stories, the more my mind began to open up to the possibility That maybe, just maybe, all these feelings I'd had for all these years, that maybe this was my fault, were not true. They were just a big fat lie that sexual abuse was telling to me. I don't know where you're at on that spectrum. I don't know if you're like a rock star survivor, you've been at this for years, and you totally believe 100% that you don't share any of the blame for what happened to you, and that's awesome. Maybe you're in the middle of your journey, and sometimes those thoughts just pop up when you don't want them to be there, and so you, you kind of know how to get rid of them, you kind of don't, but you still deal with them sometimes, or maybe you're at the very beginning, and you're like, dude, I know what you're saying, that this wasn't my fault, that I was sexually abused. I hear you, but... I just can't believe what you're saying. And all I want to ask you is to be open to the possibility that you're wrong. You don't have to tell yourself I'm wrong because I know if you tell yourself that you're not going to believe it anyway, just like I didn't believe Oprah when she said that the sexual abuse I experienced wasn't my fault. I'm like, that is a very, very wonderful thing you just said, Oprah. It doesn't apply to me but it was great. Uh, So maybe that's the point you're at and you absolutely cannot believe it. But 
open yourself up to the possibility that maybe, maybe it is true. You don't have to decide right now. You don't have to believe 100% one way or the other. But maybe just be open to the possibility that what everybody is telling you is true. And that what your brain has decided to tell you about the abuse you experienced is not true. Because I think that one of the super important things for us to remember, sexual abuse, big fat liar. The abuse tells us things that just are not true. And we talked about some of the reasons why that happens. Some of them are mental. Some of them are emotional. Some of them are physiological. There are so many reasons that we can feel like it's our fault. But when push comes to shove, you would never tell another survivor this was your fault. And I believe that about the people who are listening right now. Because we're so much kinder to other people than we are to ourselves. And if you're at a place where you don't believe that you're innocent or your sexual abuse is concerned or you're still struggling with that, don't feel any shame for that either because that's a part of the journey. I feel like it's something that we all carry with us. And I believe wholeheartedly that as you work through your story of abuse, as you talk to more people, as you read more, as you love yourself more and take care of yourself more, that belief is going to begin to take hold in your heart and in your life. The belief that you are not at fault for what happened to you. And I will say with 100% certainty that that is the truth. The truth is it was not your fault in any way, shape, or form. And just like the people in my life held that belief so strongly for me when I couldn't hold it for myself, I'm holding that belief for you. And the people who love you and who are on this journey with you are holding that belief for you until you're able to hold it for yourself. And that's what I've got for you today. I want to encourage you once again, if you want to dive a little bit deeper, the books by Dan Allender, The Wounded Heart and Healing the Wounded Heart are really great reads. They're tough reads, but I think you're going to learn a lot, especially when it comes to the shame and the self-blame and the way that he explains it and just unpacks it. It's like, oh my goodness, it's like he's been following me around my whole life and he knows exactly what I've been thinking and feeling and experiencing. So I definitely do highly recommend those books. And as I mentioned earlier, I highly recommend if you can afford a trauma therapist to try to go to therapy. I I think that that is going to be huge for you as well. And not everybody can. And I know that that's just the reality. Not everyone can do it, but you can do things each and every day to take care of yourself, whether it's reading books or listening to podcasts or watching documentaries. There are things that you can do that every single day are going to get you one step closer to that belief that is the truth that sexual abuse was not your fault. Don't forget to join the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group and let me know what you would like to hear on upcoming episodes of Survivor Sanctuary. And I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. 
And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.